0: to the end of the sermon, and and after we've preached on this passage, I think you'll understand why I would like to do that. So just give me the freedom to move our prayer time till after the passage we're going to look at this morning. So if you have your Bibles, would you find the New Testament book of 2 Thessalonians? Second Thessalonians. It's my privilege to preach today. Skylar is on vacation, and he asked if I would mind preaching to God's people, and it's one of the great joys in my life to get to do that. So pray for him that he's had a, a great week and a chance to rest. And comes back, um, having spent time with his family and with the Lord. It's funny the things you remember, and I'm going to tell you about a game show that I remember just to introduce this passage. I don't remember when I watched it, I wasn't um, wasn't terribly old, but I was old enough to know that I would do very differently than what the people in the game show were doing. This game show, if you if you won the contest in the show, What you got as a reward for that, your prize was this. You were taken to a a large grocery store, and you were given a, a cart at the grocery store, and a certain amount of time, and I don't remember the exact amount of time. I think it was like three or four minutes. It wasn't very long. And whatever you could run through the grocery store and pile into your cart and get back to the front of the store before the timer stopped, you got for free. And so the three or four, I think it was two men and two women that had won the contest in this game show, when the buzzer went off, it was like sheer panic, running through the grocery store, running down the aisles, grabbing all they could. It had to stay in the cart. You could balance it as high as you wanted and then run back to the front of the store with things falling out of the cart as you sprint to get back across the line to get it all for free. And I remember watching them, I mean, they were going down the aisle just literally shoveling everything on the shelf out into the aisle as their cart caught as much of it as they could. And then when they got back up to the front, the host of the game show would look at what they grabbed for free. What all did you get for free? And I remember when he was looking through what they got for free, thinking, in my opinion, you grabbed all the wrong stuff. I mean, you must have lost your mind. Why on earth would you grab trash bags? But they were pulling it out, and he's like, well, we go through a lot of trash bags at our house, so I just thought we ought to grab these. And, and there were, like, boxes of cereal, when cereal back then was 3 or $4 a box. And, and I'm, I'm thinking, don't think less of me. Don't think Doug's greedy. Don't think less of me if you think I'm greedy, or don't think less of me if you're a vegetarian. But there's really only one place to go at the grocery store. It, when a when a family sized cereal box takes up about the same amount of room in your cart as four ribeyes, there's just one place to go, and you load your cart with all of the t-bones, all of the brisket, all of the roast, all of the fillets that it'll hold, and then just walk calmly back to the front of the store. Forget the. I remember he held up a, this huge deal of hamburger meat, and I said, "Hey, you grab some hamburger meat." And he's like, "Yes," and she's like, "Then it dawned on me." Um, we don't have any buns, so she ran all the way across the store to grab a 99-cent bag of hamburger buns. And I just think, what is wrong with people? I mean, if I had a chance to do that, you right? I mean, don't, don't judge me. Some of you are looking at me, but you go one place and you load it up. And if you have a freezer at home, and if not, you hope you have a friend that you trust enough to say, would you put some of this in your freezer? I thought about that. This week when I was reading this passage, because I wonder if in our prayers. If God sometimes thinks you're grabbing at all the wrong stuff. You have this unbelievable privilege to come before the God of the universe and lay your petitions before him. And you're grabbing all the wrong stuff. In your prayer times. What we ask for in our prayer times reveals our priorities. What I pray for reflects my values. What I thank God for on a regular basis, the things I thank Him for reflect my values. And if, as a general rule, I'm thanking God for temporary things, I'm praying for physical, temporary things, if you and I had the privilege here in a few weeks as our college students come back and we thought this college student really needs this and we were able to give them a Bible they'd never had and a laptop they'd never had and then just for fun a tennis racket that they'd never had and the only thing that they consistently thanked us for was the laptop and the tennis racket, it would reveal their values. it would reveal their priorities. And I wonder if when God hears my prayers over a, a, a season in my life, if He says, Doug, you're, you're grabbing things that aren't unimportant. They are important, but your prayers are all weighted toward the temporary. Now, let me just say, there is certainly a place in our prayer time for asking God for physical concerns. Now, I'm, I'm saying that because I think there's a biblical reason I can say that. We are justified in asking God and petitioning God for our physical concerns. Just to give you two reasons I say that, Jesus, in what we sometimes call the Lord's Prayer or the Model Prayer, He said, you ought to pray like this, God, give us today our daily bread. That, that's asking God. Jesus is saying it's, it's totally valid to pray for physical, earthly, temporary things. That's okay. So Jesus says, listen, you can pray. God, I, I've, I've got to have food to stay alive. So would you give me what it takes for me to stay alive until you're done with me in this life? Keep me alive as long as you want me alive. And that would require some daily food, daily bread. So It's okay to pray for those things. John, in 3 John, verse 2, actually prays for a good friend of his named Gaius. And he says, I pray for Gaius that you may be in good health and that it go well with your soul. So, John models for us that it's okay to pray for people we love and their health. And Jesus models for us it's okay to pray for daily needs. So, I'm not saying those are wrong. I am saying, church, that when I read through the majority of the prayers in Scripture, they are weighted toward the eternal things. And when I look at my prayer life, when I sometimes over the years look at prayer requests that come at a prayer meeting at church, ours tend to be weighted toward the other end. I'm convicted when I read prayers in the Bible that I tend to stay at the shallow end of the pool. It's not that I'm praying for the wrong things; it's just that my emphasis always tends to be in the wrong area. It's not that I'm praying for Too much, it's that I'm praying for too little. When I can petition God for anything on your behalf, when I'm praying for you as my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I can petition God for anything on your behalf, and I stay in the shallow end of the pool for you, that reveals my values, and I fail you as my brother or sister in Christ. I fail you. So. Why is it that our prayers stay weighted toward the temporary? Is it because that's where our values are? When I'm praying for you and all I end up praying for is your health or your job situation or a big test you have in school or your success in life or your safety as you travel, or I pray that all of your problems would disappear. All valid things to pray for. But if I stop short and that's all I pray for, when I can pray for anything, I have not loved you and prayed for you the way Paul loves brothers and sisters and prays for them. So this morning we're going to look at one of Paul's prayers. It's what he prayed for the church in Thessalonica. It's one of his prayers. He actually has several prayers in, in a lot of the New Testament books, but I just want us to stop for a minute and look at this one in Second Thessalonians. Now, just to give you an idea of kind of where we're going, I'm, I want to give you two things just by way of introductions and then his three requests. So two things just by way of introduction and then the three very specific things he prays for and ask that God would inform our prayers so that we don't run through our prayer times grabbing all the wrong stuff. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 11 To this end we always pray for you Now I want to stop right there just for a second and give you these two things by way of introduction To this end we constantly pray for you That makes me ask to what end What prompts Paul to stop right here in verse 11 and and really this isn't a prayer this is more actually a prayer report there are places in the bible where paul actually as he's writing is praying he's like may god do this for you and he's reporting a prayer he's not actually praying this he's just telling them what he does pray it's a prayer report so what prompted him to stop in the middle of chapter one and give this prayer report to this end to what end paul what's making you do this So just to get it in the context, look back up at verse 5. At the end of verse 5, he says, I know that because you guys are tied to the kingdom of God, you're also suffering. At the end of verse 5, he mentions you're suffering in Thessalonica because of the kingdom of God. Church, being a Christian in Thessalonica in the first century was apparently hard. And they're suffering because of their association with the kingdom of God. He says in verse 6, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who are afflicting you. There are people afflicting, persecuting, causing pain on these brand new Christians in Thessalonica. And Paul says in verse 6, one day God's going to repay them for what they're doing to you. It's wrong what they're doing to you. And God's going to repay them. Verse 7, And he's going to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. One day Christ is going to return, and when he does, he's going to pay them back for what they've done, and he's going to provide relief, relief that you desperately need. He's going to provide that relief for you. Verse 8, when he comes with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Paul says in verses 6-10, through when Christ returns, He's going to repay those who afflicted you, and then the whole world is going to be divided into two groups. There are going to be the people who did not obey the gospel and did not love God. And he says, I think this probably broke Paul's heart, they're going to face eternal separation from God. And then there's going to be people who did embrace the gospel and did love Christ and did experience his forgiveness and grace. And those people are going to glorify Christ when he returns and marvel at his presence. I couldn't help but think about this verse as Larry led us in that last song. Holy, 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 that's what these people are going to be singing when he comes back. Paul, in verses 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, as he builds up to his prayer report, he's saying, listen, God's sovereign plan is going to be accomplished. It's tough being a Christian in Thessalonica right now. But I'm telling you, God's sovereign plan has been set. One day He will right these wrongs and He will repay these people and you will have relief and you will worship and it will all be worth it and you will marvel in His presence. Church in Thessalonica, look past the temporary. Your suffering is real. It is real and it's bad. Look past that to this when Christ is going to return. And what Paul is telling them in verses 6-10 through is God's already announced the end and he will sovereignly bring it about. You could say, God's already announced what the score is going to be at the end of the game. He's already told us. At the end of the fourth quarter, when the whole thing's over, this is the score. Christ a million, world zero. Now, let me just stop right here and, and tell you why I think what he says before his prayer report is so important. For some people, knowing what the score is going to be at the end of the game, absolutely it's already set, could prompt some people to not pray very passionately during the third quarter, because you already know the score. Why do I need to desperately, passionately, or to use Paul's word in verse 11, continuously, why do I need to always pray in the second quarter if I know what the score is going to be at the end of the game? Paul would say to that, no, no, no. Knowing what the score is going to be at the end of the game makes me pray. Knowing that God's sovereign plan is going to be accomplished drives me to pray. If your big view of the sovereignty of God leads you to neglect prayer, you have misunderstood the sovereignty of God. Because Paul says it's verses six through ten that prompt me to tell you how passionately I pray. I know what the score is going to be at the end of the game, and it drives me to pray for you guys always. His prayer report in verse 11 doesn't come out of the blue. It reflects what he's been talking about in the six verses right before it. Prayers are God-given privilege to petition God. And Paul seems to be saying, in view of how the end is going to happen, the end actually shapes my prayers. If one day we're going to stand before Christ when he returns and we're going to marvel at his presence, we're going to glory in his presence. We're going to be so overcome with him, that informs how I pray for you people. So God's eternal sovereign plan should promote prayer in our lives. Some people say, if God's totally sovereign, why pray? Paul would say, if God's totally sovereign, why not pray? Why not pray? The second thing, just by way of introduction, and this is convicting, he says in verse 11, he constantly prays for these people. We are to be a people who are constantly in prayer. It ought to just be the way we breathe. It's the way we live. If you remember, and it may be on the page right before this in your Bible, it is on mine, Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians to them, and shortly after that, he wrote 2 Thessalonians. But in the last chapter of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verse 17, he tells them, pray without ceasing. When he writes a little bit later, 2 Thessalonians, he lets them know, hey, I'm doing what I told you to do. I told you to pray without ceasing. I'm not a hypocrite. I do that for you. I pray always for you. I pray constantly for you. Paul's doing the very thing he told them to do. And Here's what's convicting. We're going to look at his three requests that come in verse 11. And I realize occasionally I do get to the deep end of the pool for people and pray like this. And then I'll think, all right, when was the last time I prayed for somebody like this? Because I do. I pray like this. And I'm like, well, it was a month ago. It was a month ago that I cried out on somebody's behalf to the Lord the way Paul prays in verse 11. I don't do it constantly. I don't do it always in my life. So what did Paul pray for when he prayed for these believers? If we're going to fill our basket with all the right stuff, what do we get to the front of the store with when we're praying for each other? Well, look at verse 11. To this end, because I know everything from verses 6 through 10, because of that, To this end, we always pray for you. Number one, that our God may make you worthy of his calling. If I could give it to you in a word, his first request was worthiness. Just worthy. I'm just going to steal Paul's words here from my outline. He prayed for worthiness. Now, the Bible is clear. All of us are utterly unworthy when he calls us, right? I mean, we can admit that just as the ground rules this morning. When he called you to salvation, when he extended grace to you and said, why don't you come, why don't you come be adopted into my family? Why don't you come experience forgiveness? When he called us to himself, none of us were worthy. What was Paul doing when God called him? He was trying to destroy the church. He was actually on his way to Damascus to imprison and kill Christians, and God called him. Paul would never say, hey, I was worthy when God called me. He knew he was unworthy when God called him. All of us, if you're a genuine believer, you know you were unworthy when God called you. God graciously saved us by transferring all of our sin to Christ and then crediting us with all of his righteousness. And he, he declared us worthy. Paul was declared worthy. On that day, he was headed to Damascus. I'm going to make you mine. Even though that day began with him wanting to kill Christians, by the time the sun went down, he was declared worthy. What Paul is praying for these Christians in Thessalonica in verse 11 is for these believers to live out who they already are. God's declared you worthy. I'm going to pray that in a practical way, in a practical, everyday kind of way, you live out who you are positionally. You are worthy because God says you're worthy. Now live like it. I'm going to pray that you live worthy, day in and day out, worthy of this incredibly high calling where you get called a daughter of God or a son of God. Stop living like you're not. Live like who you are. I'm going to pray that you live out your high calling. God's already declared you to be that. Why don't you live up to your calling? This is a really common theme for Paul, this living worthy, this worthiness. I won't take you to all of them, but I just want to read you a couple. It's all over the New Testament. A really good one is in Ephesians 4, just to show you how common how common this was for Paul. Let me just read to you Ephesians 4.1. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He writes to the church at Ephesians and says, Hey, live worthy of your calling. He writes to the church in Thessalonica and says, I'm praying that you live worthy of your calling. In Ephesians 4, he kind of fleshes out just a little bit what that would look like if you'll live worthy of your calling. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Living worthy then at least looks somewhat like Humility, gentleness, patience, unity, that's what it looks like if I'm living out who I am. Colossians one, just take you one other place where he uses this same phrase. Colossians one verse ten. So as you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, be strengthened with all his power according to his glorious might, for endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. Ephesians 4, live worthy. And it looks like gentleness and humility and unity. Colossians 1, live worthy of your calling. And in Colossians 1, it looks like pleasing God, bearing fruit, endurance, strength, joy, being thankful. All those reflect what a worthy life looks like. You know what Paul's praying for here, church? This is all about praying for someone's character. Their character. This is about praying for somebody's personal holiness. This is about praying for somebody's spiritual maturity. God, they weren't worthy when you called them. None of us were. And when you called them, they they were a baby Christian. And I'm praying that they begin to walk day in and day out in a worthy manner for what you have called them to. And that involves their character and their holiness and their maturity. What he's praying for is that God would narrow the gap. Now watch this. When God called you, you were utterly unworthy. One day in heaven when he's totally fixed us, you will be perfectly worthy. And Paul is praying for these Christians in Thessalonica that God would narrow the gap from who they were when they were called to who they're going to be one day in heaven. God, would you narrow that gap so that they begin practically to walk worthy of who they are. So that one day when you take them to heaven, there's not this huge change in who they are because they've been moving toward being worthy their whole life. And they're so far from who they were when you called them that they're walking now worthy of what you've called them to be. This is about character. And he's not just telling these Thessalini- Thessalini- these people from Thessalonica that you need to work harder. He's not just saying, "Hey, double your efforts and try harder at this." He's saying, "God, would you do this in anyway? them? They don't have the strength to walk worthy, so I need to make it a part of my prayer time. Now listen, we have a responsibility to do this. That's why in Ephesians four, he's commanding them to walk worthy. You get the other side of it in Second Thessalonians where he's saying, God, you're going to have to help them do this. We do have our responsibility to strive. He urges us to do it, work hard at it. And then he comes along and says in Second Thessalonians, God, they're never going to make it. They're never going to walk worthy. So I'm asking you to help. Me. So I have to ask myself, do I, do I actually pray like this for people? when i pray for you by name and we as a staff pray through the membership here on a regular basis pray for you by name or is this the kind of thing i'm praying for for you let me try to illustrate what it would look like if i if i if i could go ahead and pray for the temporary earthly things but not stay there in the pool go ahead and wait my prayers toward the eternal it could be if you asked me hey i um I'm interviewing for this job and they've offered it to me, and I'm trying to decide do I keep the job I've got now or should I take this other job? And you asked me to pray about that. I should pray about that, and I will pray about that for you. God would give you wisdom to know what's best for you, what's best for your family, which would be the best. Absolutely. That's an earthly thing. It won't matter a thousand years from now which job you had. It's a temporary thing. It's still something we should pray about. Absolutely. But if I just stay there and don't ever also pray like Paul, which would be like this, after i prayed for you to know whether you should take this new job or keep this one, I've prayed about your job situation. Then in my prayers I say, but God, so much more important. I pray that whichever job she takes, she'll walk with. Because infinitely more important than the name on her paycheck, what company it's coming from, It's whether when she's there, 8 to 5, she walks worthy. So God, I do do pray you'd let her know which job to take. But regardless, the way she dresses and the language she uses and the compassion she shows to people at work and the joy she shows at work and the integrity she takes to her job and the light she is in the darkness, I pray for her to walk worthy 8 to 5, regardless of where she's at. See, that's waiting myself, waiting my prayers toward the deep end of the pool for you. And I'm convicted that I don't, I don't always do that. I stop praying for the temporary, earthly, transitory things. Where you work is important. Way more important is whether you walk worthy while you're at work. So Paul prays for worthiness, personal holiness, integrity. Second thing he prays for, is also in verse 11 worthiness and the second one is fulfillment I'm just going to steal his word again verse 11 to this end that we always pray for you here's how Paul as a pastor prayed for his people that God would make you worthy of his calling and that he would fulfill every resolve for good that God would fulfill in your life every resolve you have for good. What's he praying for there? That God would fulfill every resolve for good in your life. I think this is a beautiful thing Paul prays for. Paul so believes that Christ can change a person, change a person at the deepest level, so that even your dreams change, even your desires change, even the things you're resolved to do in life, your resolutions in life, even those things change. And Paul's praying for these Christians' personal fulfillment. God, would you fulfill the things that they dream about doing if, God, in your view, they're good. If you call them good, these, these these things that they've resolved themselves to do, that in their hearts they long to do, he actually believes God can change us even in our desires. And he's like, God, if these Christians in Thessalonica that are being abused and suffering and we're praying God would make them worthy. What if, as as they begin to walk worthy, their hearts actually change? And they would find great satisfaction in getting to do something that's good, great fulfillment in getting to do something that's holy. God, would you so work the circumstances in their life and open the door for them to get to do that thing that would so fulfill them and it's holy and good and right in, in your in your view, God. I trust your view on this. Fulfill every resolve they have for good. God has to change us at a deep level to actually change our want-tos. So Paul's saying, if their dreams are noble. Guys, the world tries to find fulfillment in selfish ways, right? The world tries to find fulfillment even in sinful ways. And Paul's saying there's a chance that this maybe this church collectively, altogether, or individuals in it, have a dream. They have something they want to do. And they would find great joy in getting to do it. And it's noble and holy and right and Christ-exalting and kingdom-advancing and gospel-proclaiming. God, I'm praying that those things that they're resolved to do, would You just bless them and let them do all of them. Think about a Christian lady I knew years ago who had this passion for ministering to deaf people. I mean, it's something to be honest, I've never really considered. And she so wanted to minister to deaf people. I mean, that was just, that was in her heart. So she studied and became fluent in sign language. She started putting actions to what her heart wanted to do. And she just prayed, God, would you put me in a church someday where I can minister to people who can't hear? They can't actually hear the gospel but wonder if, if through my motions I could present the gospel to them. They can't hear it, but their heart could still hear it. And I would like to minister to them and love them and share the gospel with them. I think that's the kind of thing Paul's saying. If, if, if that's in somebody's heart, that's a resolve for good, God, would you open the door and fulfill that for them? Every resolve for good, every noble, God-honoring ambition i worked work the circumstances in their life and open the doors so they can do that. You guys realize that God is not the joy killer that many people think he is. He's not the joy killer that the world wants to say he is. He just wants us finding our joy and fulfillment and satisfaction in things that he calls good. Because then we have the joy and the fulfillment and the satisfaction and none of the regret and none of the remorse and none of the guilt. Let me try to illustrate it another way. This I, I thought about this this week because this I gave you an example of a lady who so wanted to minister to deaf people. Years ago, at the end of our week at camp when I was in youth ministry, Friday night, it had been one of those weeks at camp um, where if it could go wrong, it went wrong. Had some sponsors that weren't getting along, saying mean things to each other had some students we had taken that we were almost about to have to send home halfway through the week because we were not going to tolerate that kind of behavior. That, along with all the good things at camp, getting every morning to preach to a cabin full of students and ending the day with another cabin devotion for them and spending all afternoon with them at the volleyball courts where it was like 160. And by the time Friday night got there, I mean, I I was ready to go home. I was spit. And we got all the all the kids to bed about midnight, at least that's what we told their parents, it was probably two. And I, I'm i headed to bed, and I walk into the kitchen just to get something to drink before I head to bed, and I am, I'm spent. And when I walk in there, the guy who's been doing our cooking all week long, and he's been cooking 80 meals three times a day for five days. He's sitting in the dark in the kitchen in one of these folding chairs with his feet up on another folding chair, and he looks spent. And when I walk in, he goes, Doug, you look awful. And I said, well, I promise you this, I don't look as awful as you. Mercy wasn't like our strong suit. I said, you can't even decide whether you have enough energy to get up and go to bed. And he said, you're right. I'm trying to decide, should I just spend the next four hours here and then get up and start cleaning the kitchen? I'm so lazy, I don't even want to get up and go to bed. How lazy do you have to be if you don't have enough energy to go to bed? I said, you look awful. And then he told me this I'd do it all summer long if God let me. I'd do it all summer long. He said, I can't get up and teach God's word. I'm not very good at even presenting the gospel, but I'll feed students all week long if I know they're hearing the Bible and hearing the gospel. He said, um, when you make out the contracts next year for the churches that rent our cabin, can you just rent me out with the cabin? Just tell them it's a package deal. You get the cook and the cabin. And I told him, I said, it would kill you. And he said, right, but I would die happy. That's someone who's saying, this is my resolve for good. In my heart, I want to do this. I'm exhausted. I'm dying. I'm so tired, I can't even get up and go to bed. And I'd do it next week again if I could. And Paul's saying, listen, if in these people's hearts, you've changed their hearts and they want to do death ministry or they want to cook. Or for Paul, you know, when you read through the New Testament, Paul's longing may have been to get to Spain. You know, he talks about that a lot. I want to take this offering to Jerusalem and then get to Rome, and then I want to launch on to Spain. I want to get the gospel to Spain. I'd like to plant churches in Spain. God, that's my heart. We don't know if he ever got to do it. That's the kind of thing that the guy sitting next to Paul in church, that may not have been his resolve. That may not have been his longing, his passion, his heartbeat. But it was Paul's. And Paul saying, when I pray for you guys, I think God can so change your heart that your ambitions become holy. And then I pray that God fulfills those ambitions. And the world will look at you sometimes and be like, I have no idea why you find fulfillment in some of the things you do. And you're like, I know you don't get it. You don't get it. Because you don't understand the call. I'm trying to live worthy of the call. And I'm trying to find my fulfillment in the things God wants me to do. And Paul so loves these people. He's like, I want that for you. I want you to know the joy and satisfaction and fulfillment of having everything you resolve to do that's holy and good. I want God to work the circumstances in your life that you get to do that. Do we pray like that? I'm just asking, do we pray for each other like that? Do I say, God, you, you know this brother in my church, you know this sister in my church, and you know his gifts and his abilities and his passions. Could you channel all of them into some Christ-exalting, gospel-proclaiming work that he would find unbelievable fulfillment. in. Do I love you enough to pray like that? I think about the verse Brian read just a minute ago, the way Psalm 16 ends. God, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What if I pray that you experience that? God would make known to you the path of life, I mean real life, what Jesus called abundant life. And that you would know the pleasures that are at his right hand. You would know the joy that only comes from him in serving him. I'm not saying God fulfills all our dreams. Please don't hear me say that. I'm not one of those preachers. I am I am saying that Paul prayed, if it's a noble, holy desire in your people's heart, God, would you let them find fulfillment in accomplishing? So Paul prays for worthiness and he prays for fulfillment. And the last thing he prays for is power. I'll steal his word again. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and he may fulfill every resolve for good and he will also fulfill, same verb, every work of faith by his power. Every work of faith. By his power. Paul's praying at the end of verse 11 for God-empowered works that result from your faith. God, would you take every work of faith that they have and provide the power for it? Paul knows, and I'm grateful that Trinity faithfully preaches this. Salvation is by faith alone, right? It is by faith alone. You can never work your way into God's family. It is by putting your faith in Christ. But Paul also knows that genuine saving faith always produces works. Always. Genuine saving faith will change your life. You will have fruit. It will produce good works. As one theologian said I read years ago, faith always comes dressed in works. It's always clothed in works. Faith is what saves you. And after it saves you, it will produce a changed life fruit, good works. So Paul is praying because he knows even what James wrote. If you have faith that doesn't have works, that faith is dead. It's not saving faith. So Paul's saying, God, as their genuine saving faith begins to produce this life change, these works in their life, would you be the one that empowers every one of those works that issues from their faith, that comes from their faith? If it's faith-prompted works, God, would you, would you come alongside them and empower all of those works? So if you put these last two requests together, what Paul's praying is, God, would you fulfill every noble good desire they have? And when those desires turn into actions, would you then come alongside them and provide the power for the actions? Fulfill the desires and then empower the actions that come from those desires. If this lady has a passion for doing deaf ministry, would you open the door so she can? And then when she's doing deaf ministry, would you provide all the power so she's not doing it in her own strength? Provide all the power for her. If Paul wants to go to Spain, God, would you open the door so that at the end of his life he can go plant churches in Spain? If that's a noble desire that you want to fulfill, would you fulfill that resolve in his life? But then when he gets to Spain, would you make sure you provide all the power for him to preach the gospel and plant churches in Spain? God would provide power for service, ministry, new life, works. It's not us just mustering up the power on our own. It's me praying for you. God, empower their works that their faith produced. So again, I read that and I'm like, do I pray like that for you guys? Do I pray like that for anybody? Do I pray for the things that God is concerned for? These are three great requests that I would like to inform our prayers as a church. Yes, pray for a test you have coming up. Yes, pray for your job situation. Yes, pray for your safety as you travel. Yes, pray for your doctor's appointment next week. You... Yes, yes, yes. And weight my prayers toward this. So that when I think of you and pray for you, I pray for your worthiness. I say, God, would you, would you make him a man of integrity? I would pray for your spiritual character. I pray for you as a dad or you as a husband. I would pray that how you live would match your calling in Christ. And then before I get off my knees, I pray for your fulfillment. I was like, God, would you fulfill in these people's life every holy desire they have? Every holy desire. Would you set up the circumstances in their life so that they find fulfillment in those things? And then, God, before I quit praying for my friend and my brother or my sister, would you also provide the power so that your service to God would be done in His power. Whatever it is, however you're gifted, your service to God that's so important to this church and to the kingdom of God, He would provide the power for your service. I don't pray like that. I'm, I'm admitting I am convicted that I don't pray like this. But I should. I think i fail you if I don't pray like this. Well, in verse 12, he gives the reason. Let's wrap this up. Why, why should I pray these three things? For your worthiness, your fulfillment, and power in your life. Verse 12. I do this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. I pray all these lofty prayers for you, these eternal prayers, these weighty significant prayers, because I know that if God answers them, Christ is going to get the glory. Man, I want him to get the glory. I I think that's why it's informed his prayers. He just finished talking in verses 6 through 10 about how when he returns, we're all going to marvel and glory. And he's like, why don't we just get busy doing that now? And you would be doing that now if you were walking worthy and had all of your holy dreams fulfilled and had God's power working in you for your ministry and service and good works. But he says something kind of interesting here. I don't want to skip over. He says, I pray all this, verse 12, so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. He wants Jesus to receive glory in your life. But then he says, and you in him. I want want Christ to be glorified in you, and I want you to be glorified in him. There's There's a double glory here. It's kind of interesting that we don't read too often of us receiving glory. But it's what Paul says. If these requests are happening, I'm praying so that Christ is glorified in you and you are glorified in Christ. What does he mean by that? It's not that we receive a glory that in any way competes with His glory. I mean, If God made anything clear in the Old Testament, He said it so many times, God does not share His glory with another. Right. I mean, he made that clear. I will not share my glory with another. There's no other gods. Those mute idols you guys are building. I will not share my glory with another. And then Paul comes along and says, listen, Christ is going to get glory and you are going to get glory. Let me tell you at least part of what I think he means by that. He may mean more than this, but I think he means at least this. When God created man, before the fall, Adam and Eve in the garden, we had a certain glory. Because back then, we more accurately reflected the image of God. We were made in His image. And before sin marred us, we we more accurately reflected the image of God. After the fall, and sin tore us up, we still have the image of God. We still reflect the image of God. It's just dimmed now. It's marred. It's not quite as clear as it used to be. But you still have the image of God in you. But Adam and Eve had it in a much more clear way before they fell. And I think what Paul may be saying here is that as these three prayer requests happen in your life, you're walking worthy and you're finding your fulfillment in holy things and God's empowering the work in your life we begin to reflect the image of God again more accurately. And in that sense, we share in the glory of Christ because we're sharing in his image. We are reflecting his image. That makes us look like the humans we were supposed to be before sin messed us up. And so we're reflecting more accurately the image of God and in so doing, we're more glorious. Because we're, we're back to the way He wanted us to be. And heaven will be that way perfectly. But He's closing that gap in our life to the way we lived when He called us to how we're going to be in heaven, He's closing that gap. And as He does, we share in His glory. We're reflecting His glory. So Paul's praying at the deep end of the pool for these Christians in Thessalonica. And I stand convicted that I don't always pray for this. I want to. I want God to call my prayers up, lift them up so that I love you enough to pray for the weighty things in your life. Pray for the other things too. Please hear me. I don't want someone coming up saying, you said we should never pray for these things. That is not what I said. But I said my prayers ought to drift toward the weightier, weightier things and they should be weighted in this direction. As I pray for these things, I'm also going to bat for you and you pray for me for these things. I pray that I walk worthy. Pray that Skylar walks worthy. Pray that Ricky and Brandy, when they go back to Russia, they walk worthy. I mean, let's pray for things like we hope their passports come together and their visas and they have safe flights. But then when we get done, let's say, all right, hey, um, God, would you help Brandy walk worthy day in and day out as a mom and a missionary? Would you help Ricky? God, their desires, when they have a holy desire in Russia about Something they want to do. If it's if you think it's good, would you open those doors and work the circumstances and fulfill it in their life? And when their faith begins to produce these works, would you empower those works? That changes the way we pray for everybody. That changes the way you pray for your kids. That changes the way you pray for your parents. So I I challenge you to pray like that. If you happen to be here this morning or you're watching this online, and you're not a Christian. I want to say something to you. You're not a believer. You don't cherish Christ more than everything else. You've never experienced His forgiveness and grace and love. You can't walk worthy of your calling because you've never said yes to the calling. And God may be extending to you that invitation today to say, come to me, come to life, come to forgiveness. That marred image of sin, let me deal with that. Come to me. And if you don't come to Christ, you can't walk worthy of your calling because you said, no, I don't need you, Christ. And you'll be with that group in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 that when Christ returns, you're put out of His presence forever. But if you do know Christ, would you let this passage change and inform how you pray? Now here's what I want to do, and I ask if we could move the pastor's prayer time to the end. I want to ask you to pick out somebody in your life, in this church, in your family, and pray these three things for them. Pray for their worthiness, pray for their fulfillment, and pray for their power, God's power in their life. I just want to give you a minute for us to do the pastor's prayer time based on what I preached on this morning. And Larry, when you think we've had long enough to do that, would you come up and lead us in worship?